Okay, so this is our last lesson. We're, we're going to be breaking for the summer. And with this, we're, we're wrapping up unconditional election. <clears throat> and today, we're going to talk about something um, that's referred to as the order of the decrees. Now, I kind of struggled as to whether this was a topic that we wanted to get into, whether it was something that uh, I should even touch upon because it's a bit of an esoteric thing. Um, but as it would happen, uh, the lessons lined up where I had one Sunday left and I had this one lesson, so it was like, I think I'll teach this lesson. Otherwise, I wouldn't have anything to t talk to you about. Um, so maybe this is what the Lord uh, d desires. <clears throat> But I, I want to start off by saying what we're going to learn here this morning, kind of look at it as a cautionary tale. Um, it's the, it's, I think it's the idea of um, we can maybe sometimes push theology and philosophy um, beyond maybe what we should. Um, but there's some interesting concepts we're going to talk about, and I always think it's good to at least be familiar with concepts and with terms. And it's not something that, you know, that we need to necessarily hold close to our heart at all times, but, you know, in the future, if you hear these things come up, you'll remember, oh, that's right, Pastor Ken talked about this, and I kind of remember a little bit, so I know something about it. So what we're talking about this morning is um, the subject that many theologians, the theologians have, have uh, delved into in an attempt to try to establish an order for God's decrees. And they all agree that this, this order is not an order in time because God is eternal and the decrees are eternal. So they're not trying to say, you know, um, in time A happened and B happened and C happened. Rather, they're looking for, in some sense, what we might think of as a logical order as to how God set forth his decrees. What was God's plan? What did God have in mind? What did he first have in mind? What was the end result he was looking for? So this is a process that they're trying to picture of God's thinking before the creation of the world. So when we talk about orders, there's different types of orders. Um, when, when humans make plans, say we, uh, we plan to do A, plan A, so that we may accomplish B, this is called a means order priority. And we could all think of how, you know, we do that, like if you're planning a trip, you know, where you're going to go to get to where you want to go. So you're fitting the means to an end. And some ends have a higher priority. And when we have orders of priority, then we have, surprisingly, priority order. 
um, that, that where we rank things in the order of their, import, their importance. Um, we fit means to ends and prioritize those things. So <clears throat> those who argue for an order of the decrees suppose that God planned creation and redemption that way. And I want to emphasize the word suppose. This, uh, this, um, this, another kind of order that we can talk about is uh, in which decree A, again, creates the conditions for decree B, and that's a condition realization order. Now, as we go through this morning lesson, if any of you had ever thought you'd like to study philosophy and this is just like driving you crazy and boring you to tears, then philosophy isn't something you should study. If you find this absolutely fascinating, then maybe philosophy is something that you could take a look at. So, this condition realization order. A good example of this, if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Paul lays forth what is a condition realization order in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And Paul writes, For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here we see God's foreknowledge creates the relationship between himself and his people so that he could predestine them to be conformed to Jesus' likeness. And his predestination grounds his calling of them, and so on. However, Paul here is speaking of divine actions, not necessarily de decrees, although some of these actions, like the foreknowing and the predestining, are also decrees. But the others, such as calling, justifying, and glorifying, occur in human history as a result of decrees. And Paul doesn't mention the decrees that govern those actions. So what is Paul doing here when he's, when he's writing here in Romans chapter 8? His purpose, I, I would argue, is not to give us an inside look at God's thought process. But rather, what Paul is doing, he's giving us assurance that elect people will persevere to the end. That everybody that is foreknown by God will be predestined, called, justified, and glorified. But, but it's true, though, that God does things with a purpose and goals in mind. If we think about Genesis chapter 2, in verses 22 through 23, um, excuse me, I think Genesis 3, uh, God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden so they would not eat from the tree of life. So on that basis, one could say that God's decree to prevent Adam and Eve 
from eating of the tree of life preceded his decree to banish them from the garden. So here the precedence is logical. It's not temporal. The decree of the means to achieve an end presupposes the decree of that end. Easy concept to keep in mind, right? It's also true that God sets priorities. Not everything is equally important to God. Jesus speaks of some matters of God's law being more important than others. Example, Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. We see a priority. We see a ranking there. So in the Bible, we could say the creation, the fall, and redemption are far more important than anything else that happens. So from these considerations that we spoke of, two problems emerge in the discussion of the order of decrees. First, as we've seen, there are different kinds of orders. We saw that there's means end order, there's priority order, and there's condition realization order. And there are other orders that we're not going to get into, but you know, we could we could categorize many more. The second problem is that scripture rarely, if ever, attempts to give a broad summary of the order of God's thoughts. It does present ends and means in particular cases, priorities in others, and conditions and realizations in others, but never does it present any general map of God's mind. On the basis of Scripture, we can reasonably say that God's highest purpose is to glorify himself. We understand that, that's well known, and that is a central tenet in our Reformed faith. But we really need to exercise caution when we go beyond that. So there's this theological question that's, that's really kicked off this whole debate on, on which we're about to uh, enter. Well, we're not going to enter into it. We're going to take a look at what the debate is. Because I'll tell you up front, I'm not going to pick sides. But this theological question is this. Was the first sin of man constituting his fall predestined, or was this merely the object of divine foreknowledge? This is a question that theologians have argued and struggled with for centuries. And surprisingly... Where we sit, we may feel very firm and secure in how we look at things, but the doctrine of predestination has not always been presented in exactly the same form, especially since the Reformation. Two different conceptions gradually emerged during this time period. In their original form, they were simply, (coughs) simply a difference of opinion respecting the question posed above. Was the fall predestined, or was it just that God knew it was going to happen? Was the fall of man also included in the divine decree? And during the Arminian controversy in the 17th century, we we looked at that 
very early on in our lessons when we were looking at the, um, uh, the Synod of Dort and how the five tenets of um, Reformed theology, Calvinism, came about you know, in response to the five tenets proposed by the Arminians. So this is when this all came about. This controversy, this question... that has to do with the order of decrees. And the first we're going to look at is supra-lapsarianism. I knew I'd spell that wrong. What did I do with my eraser? There it is. So supra, Latin, before, laps, from lapus, refers to the fall. So the idea here is before the fall. And here's the order this, that the supralapsarianism people uh, propose. There's a decree to elect certain creatable people and pass over others who are reprobate. There's a decree of creation. There's a decree of the fall. A decree to redeem the elect through Christ's work on the cross. And a decree to send the Holy Spirit To apply atonement to the elect. So these theologians, what they're supposing is that the first logical step in God's plan was to elect certain creatable people. And then the creation, the fall, the redemption, and atonement. Oh, let me see. I'll give myself some room here. As opposed to the other scheme that we're going to look at in a minute. But focusing on this, um, Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, he sees the focus of the arguments in superlapsarianism uh, that they focus on the absolute sovereignty of God. 
And what he is suggesting is that this is what these theologians had in mind when they proposed this order of decrees. And there are many scripture references that you can find if you study this topic that support this idea of superlapsarianism. There are also many well-respected and good theologians through the ages that have been superlapsarian. However, the problem that you have when you're trying to figure it out is that there's been a shift in the decree, uh, the, the idea, the definition of these things. At first it was just, did God, um, did God decree the fall or did he just react to it happening? That was, the, that was how it was first defined, which is pretty simple, right? Um, that's something you could wrap your minds around. But then uh, it evolved over time with, the, with these theologians thinking uh, about this. So we're going to find the same in both camps that we're going to look at. There are scripture passages that support both. There are good, solid theologians that support both. So there's really no evidence you're going to garner from it. It's not a case where there's, oh, I can find more uh, scripture passages for superlapsarianism than the other, or I can find more theologians that I respect than the other. There's a difference of opinion here. And we're going to look at why there's a difference of opinion. I've kind of touched on it a bit. So what's the other decree, order of decrees? I know, I know that you just can't wait. You're just chomping at the bit here. It's infra-lapse. Arianism. Now, if we will go away from here today and all of you remember these two terms, I'm going to be really impressed. <laughs> but, you know, um, anyway. So, infralapse Arianism. Infra, again, Latin, means after. And lapse, again, lapsus, Latin, the fall. So, it's after the fall. So, what do these people think? This is their order of decrees. There's a decree of creation. There's the decree of the fall. Decree to elect some. Election of the elect. Four and five is the same as superlapsarianism. So Burkhoff, again, referring to his systematic theology, um, and I went to about four different systematic theologies to bone up on this to try and break it down and explain it as simply as possible. And this is what, we're, what you're getting this morning is the best I could do. So it's a, it's a deep subject, and there's some 
some systematic theologians that have delved very, very deeply into this, like Charles Hodges. He has, he's written a lot about it. And others like John Frame have written very, very little about it. Um, and we'll see why as we go through this. Um, but Burkhoff, he says the focus of the arguments in supporting infralapsarianism appeals to God's mercy and grace and strives to protect God from accusations of authoring sin. And again, as I mentioned, there's lots of biblical verses that the infralapsarianism people use to support their argument. And again, there's good, solid, respected theologians that are in that camp. So this controversy about the order of decrees focuses on the first three, as you can see. And on the, this odd superlapsarianism notion of a decree to elect certain creatable people. You notice that's not what the infralapsarianism folks say. They don't use that term. And I, th- I always found that to be a really odd term, creatable people. Now, if you've heard um, the well-known Christian philosopher William Craig Lane, if you've heard him speak, he uses this term creatable people a lot. And William Lane Craig, you know, usually when I've heard him using this, he's talking about modalism. He's a modalist. Um, or he teaches, um, I'm sorry, not modalist. He, he focuses on middle knowledge, is what he focuses on. Well, uh, uh, Molinist, I guess you would call it. Um, uh, so, like John Frame... Very, very good theologian, a reformed theologian as opposed to Lane. He says he has no idea what these people are talking about when they talk about creatable people. Who would not be a creatable person? Who could God not create? Could God not create any person that God decreed he would create? So this idea is just like, okay, Right off the bat, we're, we're running into a problem um, with definition, definitions. So the important point here in this idea is that God's foremost concern in his decrees is to display his grace in his chosen people. That this is how God will express Himself, his characteristics through the chosen people. And everything else is basically a means to an end. So here we're back into this ordering typology. And in order to give grace to these people, he must first create them. Then he must permit the fall. And then he must redeem these people. So decree one is related to these others as end to means. So in this camp, they've reversed the means uh, to an end order and, and turned it around. And decrees two and three are best construed as providing the conditions necessary for the decrees after it's been accomplished. So there's a condition realization order here. 
So there's no consistent pattern of order that's, that these people are using that have come up with this, um, this, this, this camp uh, of thinking. So that's, that's another problem that, that we have with this. You know, there's, if we're talking about logic, usually logic is coupled with consistency, and we're not finding consistency here. On the other hand, infralapsarianism, that view makes no judgment at all as to God's foremost concern. You're not going to see this stuff just in looking at this. This is just from the writings of these different theologians, what they write about this idea of the order of decrees, what can be drawn out of it. And if you're interested in reading more and learning more about it, I can give you the names of four authors and four books that you can um, delve into. So, infralapsarianism simply asks us to imagine the process as if God were thinking of the order in, a, in which events would occur. And the governing principle here is mostly condition realization. So, what's the important point in infralapsarianism? The important point is God elects certain people out of a fallen race and conceives of them as fallen even in his planning before creation. Now the counter-argument to this from the superlapsarianism people is that to think of election this way is to make it less important in God's actions and God's ways than it should be. It's re- they see it as reducing this idea of election. That it somehow makes election subordinate to the creation and the fall. Well, that's a good argument. You know, that, that, that is a problem, isn't it? So, really, I think we can see that there, there are problems in both of these camps. So what are the problems, the further, further problems with, the, with these views? These, problem, these, these, these um, ideas really are very vague and completely unclear on what they mean by order. When they talk about order, what order are they talking about? How should we understand this? It's not clear. We can see in this view that there's a mixing of different types of orders. And when, when, you, when you're not clear on definitions, then you have a very difficult time comparing two things. That's one of the issues that we run into, isn't it, when we deal with um, religions that call themselves Christian but really aren't. They use the same terminology, but we we have different definitions of what theological terms mean. And then we really can't have a discussion because we think we're talking about the same thing, but we're not. 
And scripture never really explicitly presents a complete and definitive order of thoughts in God's mind in any of the relevant senses of order that we've looked at, these three main ways of ordering things. But on the, on the contrary, Scripture warns us against trying to read God's mind. We see this in Isaiah 55, 58. God reveals to Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So here's the problem with this, with this whole discussion, and this is why you know, I'm not picking a side, um, and uh, that I, I don't think it's wise to really pick a side. This discussion that's been going on for centuries runs great risks of entering into speculation on matters which God has kept secret from us. This is something that is not resolvable. So a principle that we find referred to in literature on this ordering of God's decrees maintains this, quote, the last in execution is the first in intent. The last in execution, the last thing done, is the first thing intended. That is, it's the most important. How could we possibly know that? That's that's what I ask. So, if you undergo surgery, is the last procedure in your surgery the most important? In my surgeries, it usually is closing me back up. You know, and that, that usually, what does a surgeon usually do? Barry's seen lots of surgeries in his, in, his, uh, in his job. Often it's not even the chief surgeon that does the last procedure, right? He, the chief surgeon leaves and some... And some I guess lower-ranking doctor, I don't know what else you would call them, is the one who does the last procedure because the important stuff is done. How about when you're reading a really good book, a novel? Is the last scene in that novel the most important scene that you're going to read? It could be, but oftentimes it's not. Have you read just a really, really great book and you, you, you don't want it to end, but it finally does end, and, and the end is a letdown, because the last scene is just like, eh, it was so good. And then it just kind of dissipi- disappeared, dissipated, evaporated. No, often the, the great reveal, all that stuff happens earlier on. doesn't always happen at the end, unless you're reading a, a Butler did it type, you know, mystery. How about in a symphony? For those of you who are mus- musicians, the last chords in a symphony that are played, are those the most important? I don't know anything about music, so I, I can't answer that, but that doesn't seem to make sense to me that the last chords are the most important. I don't even know if you could pick out which are the last important. If you read a really good book, which would you say is the most important scene? I don't know if you could say that. The surgeries I went through, I think everything that happened to me on that surgery table was very important. I wouldn't say, no, that wasn't important. They, should have, they shouldn't have done that. You know, when they attached my hip or they rebuilt my knee or, or they, you know, um, uh, fixed my heart, that yeah, they could have left out a couple things. I wouldn't have known the difference. I think that's the problem we're running into when we enter into this type of discussion. Sometimes theology, even, can push things too far. 
especially when we get into the philosophical aspect of it. When you start reading, listening to Christian philosophers, if you've done that, you've seen instances where you think, boy, I don't know how he supports that idea. I've just never seen that in Scripture. I don't know where it's coming from. And the philosopher does not present scriptural passages. He doesn't open the Bible and say, thus says the word of God, and this is why I'm proposing this philosophy, because this is what it says. No, these philosophers, quite often, unless you're dealing with a good, reformed Christian philosopher like John Frame, other philosophers will rely on human reasoning. That's what they refer to, that's what they point to, that it's logical that, it, that this would happen. It, it stands to reason that this must occur for this to occur. Those can be rocky waters to navigate, and we should be careful about that. So both John Frame, who I mentioned a couple times, and Herman Bobink, who is another really great theologian who's, who's passed on, their position on this is that we need to hold our horses, that we should refrain from the speculative discussion. So why are we talking about it? Well, I think for that point alone, I think that is the takeaway from this. It's not that I want you guys to learn this stuff. I don't think this stuff is really that important. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that that theologians have wrestled with this, but in the end, I would say it is completely unresolvable because God's Word has not revealed this to us. That's where we must focus, on God's Word. We have to be very careful when we speculate beyond that. Now, I'm all for, at times, thinking, having, you know, thought exercises about what if. But when we do, we have to be careful that we understand on our own thinking, and if we're in a conversation with others, that we express this idea that, you know, I haven't found this in the Bible. So don't think I'm I'm referring to Scripture. Because what happens when we talk about stuff? And then it kind of gets mixed in with everything else that we've talked about and everything else that we've done. Pretty soon you get to the point, and I've experienced, it's like, is that in the Bible or did I see that in a movie? Is that, is that really in the Old Testament or did I watch that on the Ten Commandments you know, by Cecil B. DeMille? That, that can be a problem in our day and age, right, in our culture, when we have so much information coming at us. So that is a, that is a danger, I would say. Secondly, and not necessarily in order, means and or any of the other orders. That was an attempt at humor. We, we really need to guard against intellectual pride. The idea that we can know everything that there is to know about God. It is certainly acceptable and sometimes I would argue very wise to say I don't know. I simply don't know. God, I don't think God has revealed that. Or if, if you know where God has revealed that in the Bible, brother or sister, please point me to that. You know, so so I, can, I can learn. We have to focus on what Scripture reveals, is what I'm saying. 
We must humble ourselves in the face of what God has revealed and what he has not revealed to us. As Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So Moses writing this, a man who has had the law revealed to him knows that there are things that God is not telling him. And he understands that. And he's telling the Israelites, you must accept that there are secret things that we will not delve into, that God does not reveal to us. But he has revealed much to us. And what he has given us, which is his word, belongs to us. It's ours. And now, as the spiritual Israel of God, these words belong as much to us as the first children of Israel and to our children, that we are to pass them on and not enter into myths and uh, speculation and things that just confuse everyone. And what is, the, what is the whole reasoning behind this that Moses lays out in Deuteronomy? It's so that we may be obedient to this law that God has given us. The whole idea is obedience. If we're glorifying God, honoring God, we are obedient to him. He's given us enough to be able to do that, to be able to do that adequately, and he's given us more than enough. I learn something every time I study the Bible, as I'm sure each and every one of you do. We're never going to exhaust what the Bible has to offer us, what God has to give to us, no matter how long we live. So that's the takeaway in this morning's um, lecture. These words, really, you, maybe you've never seen them again. You probably, maybe you'll never see them again. Um, that's not the important point. So with that, we're going to wrap up our uh, presentation of the doctrines of grace for this time. We'll take a break for the summer, of course, and we'll be enjoying communion meditation from the men at the 10 a.m. service. And at some point in time, we're going to pick this up and we're going to go on um, to the next doctrine of grace. Um, and as you can see, we've probably moved a little bit slower than you might expect. But as you've gotten to know me, both on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, you can see that I take my time moving through things. So I'm in no hurry. I plan on sticking around for a long time. So... There's no fire lit under my feet, so to speak. Anyway, I've enjoyed presenting this to you. I hope that you've, in, that you've profited from this series of lessons that we've had and that it's caused you to think. It's, ca it's given you a desire to delve deeper into God's word. That's, that's the whole idea behind this, to, to benefit you that we all may glorify God as his assembly here in Ontario. And with that, let me close in prayer, and we'll have a 15-minute break before the 11 a.m. service. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for what you have revealed to us, the, the, the precious knowledge you have given us that we can hold on to, that belongs to us, that we can give to our children, Father. And 
And I just ask that, that the Holy Spirit help us to be respectful of the secret things that belong solely to you, Father, that we understand the difference, that we respect the boundaries that you've established for us, because these boundaries, Father, we know are for our own good, that, that you've established them because you love us and you want what's best for us, Father. I pray that we be obedient to that, Father. I pray that the rest of this morning's service and this evening's service, that it glorifies you, that we may be good and true witnesses to the gospel of Christ, to the atonement that we benefit from due to the Son and the Holy Spirit. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.